Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The Biden administration has unveiled its national security strategy this week with China as the principal threat to the United States, followed by Russia, threats to the Western Hemisphere, the Middle East, Africa, the Arctic, and space. The administration is also working on a nuclear posture review as the Pentagon works on a revised national defense strategy, all of which should be disclosed soon. Ukrainian forces continue their advance as Russia evacuated its citizens from the key city of Kherson, and Ukrainian forces struck the Kerch Bridge, connecting Russia to Crimea, prompting a sweeping and indiscriminate series of strikes from Moscow across Ukrainian cities. Russian use of Iranian drones are proving deadly to Ukrainian civilians and military forces alike. NATO defense ministers met this week in Brussels to improve Europe's defenses against air and missile threats, including with the 14-nation SkyShield program that could include Israel's Arrow 3 missile as its upper-tier weapon. It's also stepping up deliveries of air and missile defenses to Ukraine to counter Iranian drones as well as uh, Russian uh, weapon strikes. The Chinese Communist Party will convene on Sunday to begin the process of coronating Xi Jinping as a paramount leader on equal historical footing to Mao Zedong to advance the nation's great cause. Meanwhile, Beijing is blasting the AUKUS deal. North Korea continues its missile tests. Taipei warns China that it's risking war by continuing to fly unmanned aircraft over its territory. And unfortunately, Japan suffered its first commercial rocket launch failure in 20 years. Demonstrations in Iran continue with women leading the way, but unclear whether the Islamic regime will crumble as quickly as the Shahs. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Dr. Kathleen McGinnis, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts CSIS among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome to the program. Great to have you on. But before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Communications and Intelligence sponsors our command and control coverage. And our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting uh, was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. Check out our two weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who uh, takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much again. Kathleen, thank you very much. Great to have you back on the program. Uh, Dove, uh, let's start with you and with uh, Russia. An extraordinary retreat from the Kherson uh, area. NATO defense ministers met, uh, focusing on both what our alliance air and missile defense needs, uh, at the same time, also providing more capability uh, to Ukraine in order to protect itself from uh, the Ira- uh, Iranian drones that have proven very deadly. Uh, Sam Bendad of the Center for Naval Analyses joins us weekly uh, for an update, and we'll have another one for us on Monday. Uh, walk us through where we are now in this war um, and, and where we're going and what were sort of the nuanced elements of what you picked up. I thought it was fascinating that Israel might you know, I mean, there will be a competition, obviously, but might, you know, be providing air and, uh, high-end missile defenses uh, for Europe. Walk us through what you thought were the most interesting elements from the past week. Well, the first thing, uh, of course, was that uh, 
at this meeting of the so-called contact group of about 50 countries, um, it's clear that NATO in particular is ready to send more air defense systems to Ukraine. Now, <clears throat> the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, says that this is far from what he needs, but he's always saying that. In the meantime, they're going to get German systems. The first one was already delivered. We said we'll accelerate ours. Um, and so that's all to the good. And of course, the U Ukrainians are pressing ahead, which is why Kherson, which is absolutely critical because it's uh, uh, a key part of the Donbass area, uh, has uh, looks like it's fallen to Ukraine. Now, what Putin is doing now, he's taken uh, another leaf out of uh, Hitler's playbook. Hitler used V2 rockets to try to terrify the Brits. Churchill said, it ain't going to change my mind. And he's doing the same thing with Kiev and a lot of other places, taking out civilian targets. And the Ukrainian response is exactly the same as the British response was in 44 and 45. You can do it. You can knock down our buildings. You can kill our children. We're going to fight back. And as long as the West continues to support, and by the way, you look at the vote in, in the General Assembly where you had uh, an overwhelming majority supporting uh, a, a, a vote that essentially said Russia is a, it has to stop. And, you know, there were only four countries that uh, voted against this. Uh, and so there's tremendous pressure on Putin, but you got to remember that a lot of that pressure is also coming from the extreme right that are saying he's not doing enough. We ought to go further. We ought to use nuclear weapons and so on. Um, so I don't think he will use nuclear weapons. I think we have many ways of responding to that without going nuclear. Um, and I think Mr. Biden is starting to make that ever more clear. They say that he made a slip about Armageddon. But, you know, that's nothing new for Joe Biden. He's always making slips, but he gets it right and uh, he's getting it right. The one thing we're not doing and that we have to do is get more armor to the Ukrainians and to do it before the winter really sets in. Because once it sets in, everything kind of comes to a stop and it becomes a World War I type of situation. Um, there is some armor coming, but the Germans are still not sending armor directly. And we're saying, well, our tanks are too complicated. These people are gonna have to take a long time to train. Well, yeah, so send it now and they'll be able to put those tanks to use much more quickly. So there's a lot that still needs to be done, but there's no question that the situation on the ground really does favor Ukraine. And of course, the morale issue is totally in favor of Ukraine. Uh, and indeed, I mean, there are a lot of uh, U.S. folks pushing for M1 tanks, for example, to get over there, whereas the administration's view is, hey, let's get them the equipment that actually they know to minimize the training burden, right? Let's get them uh, former Soviet or Russian origin uh, equipment, which is what they're familiar with. And indeed, I mean, the Ukrainians have seized quite a lot of uh, Russian uh, armor uh, in, in, in some of these retreat areas. Um, Kathleen, uh, you recently hosted a terrific event on how Ukraine is, is fighting Russian uh, disinformation. I commend people to check that uh, conversation uh, out. CSIS has been doing an extraordinary job tracking the war, but probably one of the best jobs in Washington, if not the best job. What's your guys' take on, on sort of where we are and, and where we're going? Well, just to build on Dove's point, you know, when, when we look at 
Russia, when we look at Putin and we look at the strategy, I mean, it's been clear from the beginning, and especially when you look at the conduct of Russian campaigns in the past, that they're quite comfortable with Pyrrhic victories, right? They're, I mean, just breaking Ukraine is a perfectly acceptable outcome for Moscow, it appears. Um, but that's not actually a theory of victory, especially when we're looking at Ukraine. And this leads to this um, amazing success that the Ukrainians have had in countering disinformation and and the influence and information war. Um, they have been extraordinarily effective shaping the international narratives, particularly in the West, galvanizing governmental support, but as well as you know individuals that have been spending their time, um, dedicating monies um, to try to support the um, fighters in Ukraine. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it's it's one of the, the, the main or key mechanisms right now that people are doing so. I mean, like when you look, when we look back in history, we're gonna say like, how, how what? Because like the, um, one of the key mechanisms is this hashtag North Atlantic Fellows Organization. And the North Atlantic right. Fellows Organization is basically an online gaggle of cartoon Shibu Inus that have been repurposed and they've got avatars. I mean, it's it's wild, absurdist stuff. Um, and they make memes. There's one, um, there's a there's a video of of these um dogs in Devo hats, you know, um you know, singing whip it. Um, it, and, and just, it's hilarious. And it's, it's been extraordinarily effective. It's gone viral. They've raised um, over a million dollars for um, support uh, for Ukraine. Um, and they've been successfully able to take down um, Russian disinformation and propaganda that's just wildly viral. And as, as the one of the, the co-founders of NAFO said, you know, when, when you have a Russian official responding online to an army of cartoon dogs, he's lost, right? So it's just fascinating when we look back at how this campaign has played out and how the information space has been working in this campaign. Cartoon dogs, who knew? It's going to be fascinating. Uh, I, uh, I I do. It, it was a terrific uh, event. It had Matt Moore's um, Yulia uh, Mandel, uh, you participated in it, obviously, Seth Jones uh, and Emily Harding. And it was uh, it was a terrific event um, and and talk and, and basically that the Russians are very, very good at structuring an offensive campaign uh, to disinform and misinform. But actually, if you turn the tables on them, they're not very agile and they don't know how to respond. Um, and indeed, we're seeing, you know, their expectation was nobody was going to do anything. And then once anybody does it, you know, they, they have a plan. It just has a tendency of sort of falling apart. Obviously, we'll see uh, right. where 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 all of this goes. Yeah, I um, mean, what's happening is uh, NAFO is too diffuse for them to respond to, um, and and the, the Kremlin and the, their troll farms are used to having structured messaging, as you as you as you've discussed. So, um, it's they're completely caught flat-footed with this, and it's just, it's fascinating to watch. Uh, it, it is fascinating uh, to watch, and and we wish uh, heartily uh, their immediate collapse. I want to get to uh, Patrick and then get to the conversation about the national security strategy in, in just a moment. But Dove, as, as, I just want to ask um, a question, uh, just a nuclear question really briefly. Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, when, you know, whether it was a slip by the president or not. He's said, you know, it's important for us to avoid Armageddon. We don't want to have World War III. He's been saying that consistently, even though the United States is now, you know, as you said, kind of doing the right thing at unprecedented levels, albeit perhaps not as quickly as it should. As everybody knows, France isn't formally part of NATO's nuclear uh, chain of command. And while NATO defense ministers declined to discuss 
nuclear, you know, or or any form of retaliatory plans should Putin use nuclear weapons against uh, Ukraine. Emmanuel Macron said that France would not respond uh, if Russia uh, attacked Ukraine with uh, nuclear ballistic missiles. Um, you know, we're we're both francophiles. Uh, what did you make of that statement? Was that a helpful statement or not a helpful statement? Because you know the, a- the French wild card was something that did used to keep Moscow awake, because France was like, well, I mean, you cross the Rhine, I'm going to nuke you. So, well, actually, it was a Gaullist statement. I mean, France is still very much a Gaullist state, and if you recall, what Charles de Gaulle had said was, "I've got an, a capability that I can join with the United States when I'm ready to," but on the other hand, it's really there to make sure that nobody attacks France. And so what Macron was saying basically to his domestic audience is, I haven't changed the position that Charles de Gaulle laid out all those years ago. That doesn't mean that on the day something happens, France could elect to stand by us. But it also doesn't mean they'll detonate a nuclear weapon. There are lots of other things that we can do and that they can do. So I don't see this as particularly significant or a particular change in French nuclear policy. Um, thanks uh, for that great uh, clarification. Uh, Patrick, uh, go ahead, uh, Kathleen. Can I just jump in here? Um, one of the things that Macron's statement and also the, the Russian nuclear saber rattling has sort of impressed upon me is how urgently NATO and its member states need to reconsider what it means to be a nuclear alliance again. Mm. Um, Arguably, you look at NATO's nuclear posture and its nuclear capabilities, and it seems to have been communicating the the irrelevance of nuclear weapons to security policy. And that's a good thing. However, when we're in the face of um, nuclear saber rattling of this sort in, in the conflict in Ukraine, it strikes me that there's a lot of very serious analytic work that needs to be done in national capitals and NATO headquarters to think through these kinds of scenarios. Do I think it's likely that that Russia will use a nuclear weapon in Ukraine? No, I don't, not presently. But I do sure think that we need to, enter, you know, as, as national security practitioners, we need to be thinking about these scenarios very carefully and doing the planning. The nuclear mission is a special mission. There is so much to it. You don't just sort of turn it on and there you go. Right. Um, it's it's much more complicated. And so um, I, I, I hope that the conversations that and the developments that are happening right now spark a, a much more serious and rigorous dis- discourse on um, N- NATO's nuclear posture. And again, what it means to be a nuclear alliance. Um, I, I think it's a it's a great point, and it's something I think the alliance has been working toward uh, for some time. Because obviously the Russians were, you know, nuclear saber rattling. I know that uh, um, when General Palomeros was Allied Command uh, Transformation Chief, he he started some internal work on uh, that was followed. You know, that Denny Mercier then did, uh, and as well as um, senior levels at senior levels of the administration, there's been a lot of consideration. Uh, with what are response uh, options. Patrick, I think, uh, you know, you were uh, talking to us and I think Jim uh, Townsend also talked to us about, you know, that the White House, there was a team looking at this issue. And by the way, right, Vladimir Putin may do a test shot, but if he's going to use nuclear weapons, he may want to use a number of them, right? I mean, once you cross that Rubicon, why would you drop a bomb? You might want to make your point by dropping 30 bombs, right? Which is sort of a different, um, a, a, a different, uh, a different kettle of fish. 
Um, Patrick, uh, do, you, do you want to weigh in on this uh, at any point? Because actually, this ties into what the Chinese are doing, right? I mean, we're in a neo, you know, neo-nuclear era, uh, and you know, the the Chinese are picking up a lot of lessons, both from saber rattling, but also making a massive investment in ICBMs and on weapons and on delivery systems. Yeah, and I think North Korea's nuclear saber rattling and South Korea, our ally, calling for uh, possible redeployment of nuclear weapons somehow to the Korean Peninsula. Uh, underscore what Kathleen was just talking about, that as an alliance, both transatlantic and transpacific alliances need to think about the nuclear equation much more seriously. The latest saber rattling out of Russia, I gather, was the deputy secretary of the Russian Security Council just threatening guaranteed nuclear World War III uh, if Ukraine goes ahead with NATO membership. Uh, and that was on the heels of, I think, uh, Secretary General uh, Stoltenberg uh, again, cautioning Russia about even a tactical nuclear demonstration use as the NATO defense ministerial begins in Brussels. So these nuclear issues are rattling around in ways as as programs like the Chinese program or the North Korean program are developing uh, and quickly developing new new systems and new weapons. Um, and meanwhile, other agreements, again, if I can just go back to the Korean Peninsula, right now the South Korean government is being asked by the uh the ruling party in the in the National Assembly um, to step away from the 1991 nuclear agreement, um, if especially after a seventh nuclear test, which is expected be before our midterm election. So sometime even in the midst of the Chinese Party Congress that begins this Sunday, um, and is also being asked to uh, abrogate the comprehensive military agreement, uh, which was meant to be a confidence building measure. Uh, agreed to by uh, the uh, last South Korean government and in Kim Jong Un in 2018, and and they just violated it. North Korea's just violated that by firing artillery shells into a maritime buffer zone. So I know I'm mixing the conventional and the nuclear, but they're related because N North Korea also just launched test launched two long range cruise missiles to quote unquote strengthen their nuclear forces. Um, and it just launched uh, a, a lake-based, which is kind of like a poor man's SLBM, because it's not really mobile, and, and you're firing it out of the base, you know, out of a reservoir. Um, but nonetheless, a nuclear-capable short-range missile. Um, and the Chinese are conducting this massive buildup of their nuclear arsenal uh, in this decade. So the nuclear weapon equation is absolutely vital right now, even if uh, deterrence is ultimately uh, a strong. Um, and and the saber rattling is is just that it's still saber rattling. But as Kathleen pointed out, uh, you know that doesn't stop escalation from possibly happening. So um, critical issues here on the nuclear front um, that we can we can talk about in the context of the national defense uh, national security strategy. Uh, the last point I'll make there is that I think the uh, nuclear posture review, which is still to be issued, will probably make some headlines. Um, is there anything uh, additional we want to say? Uh, because there are a couple of other questions I want to want to ask you, including why Beijing is braying so loudly about AUKUS now. I mean, just at the very time when many people in Washington are are increasingly concerned that addressing, you know, that it's a terrific agreement and it already has um, a lot of benefits on AI, on quantum, uh, on cyber, on a whole variety of uh, areas, science and technology that delivering nuclear attack submarines may be somewhat more problematic, right? I mean, that was supposed to be the original part of the idea and maybe somewhat more problematic than we'd expected, you know, and, and China's talking very loudly about that. Is there anything else we need to know as uh, she goes into coronation on Sunday? Any, any, anything 
that you yeah. can add that we haven't already talked to death on, on this? <laughs> Yeah, a few things, but let me just uh, amplify on the AUKUS comments, because this is interesting. People may may have missed this, but if you're in Australia uh, and, and you're the labor government of Australia, uh, you know that Chinese information operations are, are tailoring their information operations to the possible wedge that exists in the Labor Party politics between the United States and Australia over AUKUS. Uh, and so China's trying to both uh, hurt AUKUS because they see that as very damaging to their interests. Um, and they know there are big decisions that have to be made here in the next several months uh, out of Canberra, along with London and Washington. Uh, and they also know that this issue is something that is divisive in, in again, the labor politics. So you had the ambassador to Canberra from China uh, this week um, give a blistering attack on AUKUS as an Anglo-Saxon pact, as an ethnic security pact. Um, you know, this is interesting because I pointed out that, you know, Secretary Austin and, and, and Foreign Minister Penny Wong, you know, and others could talk about what, what that means in our, you know, uh, sort of multi-ethnic democracies. But the point is, it's based on strategic decisions, not ethnic decisions. The fact that they're hitting that ethnic issue is they're trying to, again, drive a wedge between Asia and, and kind of the Caucasian-led uh, sort of uh, politics in, out of Canberra, uh, if I can overgeneralize. And I think that's a losing argument, uh, first of all, but I think it's also interesting because they're, they've they been trying to say they're patching up their relations with Australia slowly, and they're not going to pursue wolf warrior diplomacy during Xi's big coronation. Uh, and yet here they are really coming up to the line of that uh, over AUKUS. On the 20th Party Congress, it opens Sunday. Uh, we're beginning this, uh, what could be the second decade of Xi's uh, stranglehold on CCP. Uh, we were talking about Chris Buckley's excellent article in the New York Times about how he's basically gone from Uncle Xi 10 years ago to the communist monarch that he is, you know, right now. And he's not, um, you know, allowing any kind of dissent. Uh, the the new tank man incident on the bridge in Beijing this week uh, is a, an, just one illustration of that, where the fellow hung out the banner saying, end COVID, zero COVID, he was immediately uh, incarcerated, uh, and yet also become a kind of a folk hero, because there's so many Chinese that are just fed up, but they cannot dissent, cannot dissent publicly in China right now, because that's how Xi Jinping is demanding this utter loyalty. And yet, as you project ahead over the next several years for China, slower economy, more political problems, uh, and yet more absolute control in the hands of Xi Jinping. So all of this spells, uh, you know, a crisis ahead, and we'll have to see how this works out. And and obviously, the Chinese trying to press forward the argument, right, that Australians aren't real Asians, um, right, they're alien to this region. Exactly. You know, yes. leave this region right. to us and all you uh, Anglo-Saxons, you Americans, you Europeans, you stay out of this because this for, isn't uh, right. A Asia for Asia, you know, Asians is is kind of a one of their long-term themes in terms of uh, propaganda points. Uh, can uh, I it, just it, add? Yeah, of course. One no. other thing, and that is the Anglo-Saxon card also will appeal to the French. Who are still who are still somewhat upset about AUKUS, and so the Chinese aren't just trying to mess up the, uh, the or mess with the heads of Asians, as Patrick rightly points out, but I think they're also trying to mess with the uh, America's allies because clearly every time you say les Anglo-Saxons, who do you think is saying it? Well, I mean, there's another complicating uh, element of this, France still is not happy about this and is stoking 
what is a considerable Australian anti-nuclear movement um, right now. And so if I can't have this deal, neither can you guys. And, and so there's an element of that um, as well that's playing out in the background, right? Um, and, that's exact, and, and that's exactly my point, that the Chinese right. are stoking the French or stoking the Australians. Well, I think the French are relatively self-stoking on this one <laughs> because they, they are uh, very, very cross uh, with, with the outcome. Although I have to say, you know, in, in the same breath, um, few of our European allies, none of our European allies, uh, or maybe with the exception of the United Kingdom, are, you know, I mean, there are millions of French citizens in the Asia Pacific. Uh, and so France is actually an, an Asian power, uh, the likes of which uh, you know, Britain is not uh, by sheer population and territory and otherwise. And so the the, the thoughtfulness of um, the French contribution, French thinking, French engagement, uh, as as everybody on this call knows, is, is very welcome. We have a lot uh, more to cover, and I want to keep moving because I have one more question for uh, uh, Patrick. Uh, Taipei warned Beijing at risk war if China continues to overfly Taiwan with unmanned aircraft. As always, China is trying to establish a new normal and assert its sovereignty over Taiwan, right? Its view is it's mine anyway and devoid of borders so I can do whatever I want to do. What does Taipei's threat really mean? How does Taiwan stop the harassment and violations of its territory? Because ultimately, I think what the Chinese want is for the Taiwanese to start shooting down drones and then maybe use that as cause of spell eye, right? What is the dynamic we're seeing here? Because big things often come from seemingly little things like this. Well, the Chinese may eventually use that kind of pretext for military action, but that's not what they're looking for right now. If you just play back the last couple of months, you know, after Speaker Pelosi's visit, it caught the Chinese off guard. They rolled out the old playbook and and ratcheted up several times, dialed up the tension, including firing a missile over Taiwan, firing, firing, uh, launching a drone over Taiwan uh, offshore islands as well. Um, and that uh actually has settled back down. And so, you know, the fighting is going on in Ukraine, the missiles are flying on North Korea, but Taiwan issue is actually rather quiet. It's turned it back into the technology debate issue over how do we protect our semiconductor sort of lifeline and supply chain when 90% of the, you know, high-end fabricated chips are made in Taiwan and by TSMC. And so we're trying to figure out a way to diversify and have TSMC diversify off Thailand, Taiwan and also build up our own capacity over the next decade or 15 years, because it's going to take time because it's not just the fabrication, it's it's the uh, it's also the packaging and assembly, which we do almost nothing in that right now in the US. Uh, back on Taiwan, though, and proper, what, what is the DPP government of, of Tsai Ing-wen trying to do? She is trying to avoid that uh, new normal of overflight of the offshore islands and of over the Taiwan main island. Uh, by military systems of the PLA, whether that's a drone uh, aircraft or missile tests. Um, you're right, they don't have any uh, great uh, options, to, but they will try to shoot down, and they did shoot down one of the drones. They will try to uh, intercept these systems if they're right over Taiwan. question is their capability. I don't think they're worried about that being escalatory from a Taiwan perspective because uh, it's it's over Taiwan. And I don't think the Chinese are going to do this on a routine basis either. Um, but I think they will resort to this kind of pressure tactic whenever they're unhappy with Taiwan. Um, a very interesting report just came out uh, called Avoiding War Over Taiwan Task Force. Uh, it was reduced into an essay that just came out in Foreign Affairs this week by Taylor Fravel and Bonnie Glazer and Tom Christensen, Andrew Nathan and Jessica Chen Weiss. And they talk very much about the need to adhere to the one China policy and not to 
succumb to the temptation of thinking you can just declare strategic clarity, promote Taiwan independence, promote military forces on Taiwan or a de facto alliance without that really risking the breakdown of deterrence. They may overstate that case, but it's right. it's a well-stated case. Um, and, and meanwhile, uh, you got a lot of people working on Taiwan scenarios, uh, planning. People are less worried about that kind of attack. Right now, they're still worried about the gray zone. And so going back to your question, Vago, what Taipei is trying to do is to try to lock down that gray zone uh, salami slicing by China um, and not in trying to reduce the, the normal, the idea that this is routine, that you can fly over uh, Taiwan. Uh, Patrick, uh, I, I was going to go to Kathleen for her to start us off on the national security strategy, but you've sort of teased this up, right? So I want you to take a bite at this. Obviously, you know, China is 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 the number one threat as mentioned in it, and the administration is trying to clarify the adherence to the one China policy as well as the national sort of obligation uh, to Taiwan to square the uh, circle uh, or circle the square or whatever you want to call it. Uh, that President Biden has started with his repeated comments that there, America has an obligation to defend Taiwan. Talk to us about the national security strategy. Is it the right strategy for the right time? What's good about it? What's not? Kathleen, want to get your your sense and then and then Dove, uh, uh, Patrick. Well, in less than fifty pages, it's a public statement of where we know U.S. policy is. Basically, we're two years into the Biden administration, so there's really nothing new that you would you know didn't didn't know about Biden administration policy in this document. Um, you may actually know less in the sense that it really parsed down some of the policy. So, for Taiwan policy, it's a very crisp, short, one paragraph statement of everything you know that we want peace across the strait that we don't want independence of Taiwan, or we're not promoting that, um, that we're adhering to the Taiwan Relations Act, the six assurances, the three communiques, and we're, we're, we're adhering to the one China policy. Um, and so it doesn't elaborate though. Uh, and, and all the difficult issues are really in the elaborative discussions that are happening in, in the real world, not in this strategy. I listened to Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, deliver this uh, a speech related to the, the rollout here uh, at Georgetown University in tandem with the CNAS. And um, it was it was a great speech and it was a great conversation. He, he really connected with the students. I was sitting among the students and, and, and it was interesting to watch their uh, sort of interest in him. Um, but um, on a strategic level, I mean, there are several questions that are raised out of this document. One of them is, and he admitted that this was delayed in terms of being released from the beginning of this year to now because of the, the, the Russian attack on Ukraine. So that's why this document talks about not just out-competing China, which everybody knew that was the main centerpiece of the Biden administration policy, but out-competing China and Russia. So they've tried to integrate Russia into this. And it, secondly, it's changed their approach to President Biden's uh, embrace of alliances and partners. They're no longer just, uh, it's no longer the pivot. We're beyond the pivot. It's about the relationship, the growing relationship between our transatlantic and transpacific partnership uh, and, and alliances. Um, and those are the kind of the nuanced changes, but it raises questions strategically. So if this were a real strategy, is, is this still a favorable balance of power? I mean, are, are we taking on too much? Can we deliver on these things really? And in in the last line, I would just point out is that Jake Sullivan, in his you know very American optimistic way, says we're not just going to succumb to a competitive lens at looking at the China uh, issue. That's great, but what if China is just looking at the competitive lens? <laughs> right. And, and you know, and that's that's the challenge. So it's yeah, that sounds good. I like that. That appeals to my American sensibilities of of optimism. 
But unfortunately, other countries are not playing by those rules. Russia's not playing by fair rules. Look at what they've just done of the overreaction to the Kerch Strait Bridge, uh, you know, blow up. Um, and and North Korea's not playing by the rules. They're trying to uh, scrap the documents that they've signed in the past, uh, you know, and complain about them. Uh, and now you've got uh, China, of course, doing whatever it wants and uh, not wanting to play by our rules. So um, real big challenge here in terms of implementation. And we know that. I mean, there's so, again, two years into administration, it's really hard to release a strategy that doesn't say anything new and yet try to get a headline. Um, I, I should point out, I mean, there was also, you know, we were talking about nuclear uh, earlier in the program, right? I mean, there, there is uh, a line in there that says the United States will not allow Russia or any power to achieve its objectives through using or threatening to use nuclear weapons, uh, which, um, which, which stood out to many people as, um, you know, certainly being a, an, an, um, an, an interesting Right. I mean, you know, in a way to tell a timely addition. Yeah, that, that is a timely addition. Yeah. And, and you'll see more addition. in the nuclear posture review as well, I think. Indeed. Hence, hence your, your point. This will be newsworthy. Kathleen, you've been very uh, patient. Uh, give us give us your sense. Right. I mean, what did you like about the strategy? What did you not like about the, the strategy? Well, you know, as, as Patrick said, there's there's not too much new here because we've been seeing how the administration's been playing out. And we also thankfully had the interim national security strategic guidance um, published much earlier in the administration, which gave us a sense of the overall trajectory of um, the Biden administration's thinking um, on national security matters. Um, of course, we have the um, the quadrennial, the uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth uh, from the strategy community, who, because everybody's sort of railing against the fact that it's it's not actually a strategy. There's no ends, ways, and means here. It's just a, a statement of stuff we're doing, and to you know, that's a fair criticism. But oh, that's not what these documents are designed to do. Um, they're designed to get principles in a room to and think through these strategic problems and then articulate a vision. Um, the, as, as Eisenhower said, the, the plan is nothing, uh, planning is everything. And so this is a statement of, of how the Biden administration sees things um, moving forward, especially you know as, as um, Jake Sullivan discussed um, in the wake of the invasion, the Russian invasion in Ukraine. I thought it was actually a pretty great move to, um, to reframe the strategic competition from, you know, we're competing with China as our pacing challenge. Um, and, but we're in, in earlier iterations and in earlier, um, earlier administrations, national security strategies, um, Russia was seen as yet another strategic competitor. Um, the Biden administration in the wake of Ukraine has said, no, we're, we're constraining Russia now. Um, and we're, we're trying to, to, to constrain their ability to advance their imperialist vision um, of, of, of world order, and, and particularly in the, um, the Russian periphery. So I thought that was actually a, a pretty important distinction. Um, I also really like the attention that was paid to the workforce. Um, as we've known, you know, and folks who've been watching the Pentagon and the national security workforce for a while have watched, you know, between furloughs and attrition and and, and folks just leaving the building um, that, that we have gotten ourselves close to a national security a workforce crisis. And so the dedication that this administration is um, showing to you know, fixing some of these workforce problems and putting our um, our workforce on a better footing for the future, I think is is urgent, 
important and laudable. Um, so uh, I, I would. Really uh, I, I, I would agree. I would agree with that because it is a very battered uh, workforce and felt particularly yeah. so, um, you know, given given some of the policies and approaches uh, of, of the last administration in terms of sort of waging war on bureaucrats. And, and I was uh, talking to a friend of mine, a Republican friend of mine, actually, who was saying that our hurricane prediction ability was uh, was damaged uh, in part because of the exodus uh, of talent. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's, and it's it, all about people. A lot of talent left during the Trump administration, but this was a trend that was ongoing well before the. Uh, in, indeed, indeed. Um, Dove, so, uh, let, let's uh, let's go to you and get and get your sense of what worked and what didn't. Uh, Richard Fontaine of CNAS uh, jumps to mind, right? I mean, he was saying that the connection uh, between. Uh, the you know in, in in term you know for an administration that talks about integrated and integrated power perhaps not as integrated with the diplomatic uh, and the economic tools I mean what's what's your sense about what they got right and and you know where they can do better well I think you you heard what they got right so let me point out some things that they could have done better first uh, integrated uh, deterrence uh, which they spell out point by point. Uh, is something they've been talking about for some time. You've got to ask yourself, well, if integrated deterrence really works, why did Putin get away with what he's getting away with? You could argue, well, he's there, you know, Ukraine's not in NATO, but the fact of the matter is, it's not clear that integrated deterrence, uh, the way they lay it out, which is essentially uh, giving soft power as much importance as hard, hard power, really is effective. That's number one. Number two is, as with all these documents, it's a vision document. It doesn't tell you how. It doesn't even begin to tell you how. And sometimes you need to be able to say how you think you're going to do some of these things. Um, third, uh, the, the notion that, you know, the whole world is, is kind of uh, waiting for us to lead. I think we need to be a little more modest. Uh, the Indians clearly are not waiting. I'm not even talking about the bad guys. Right. The Indians are not waiting. The Brazilians are not waiting. The South Africans are not waiting. We've got NATO allies that aren't waiting. Um, we really need to be a lot more serious and careful about what we can do and what we just cannot do. I mean, in a sense, it's uh, I'm picking up on Patrick's point. Are we biting off more than we can chew on the one hand? And on the other hand, are we giving ourselves enough to chew with? We absolutely have to improve our, our uh, personnel standards. Uh, they are demoralized, or they were, that, that uh, Kathleen is right. Uh, we have to uh, clearly beef up our diplomatic capabilities. We probably ought to say a lot more than we already are saying about our economic power. I mean, look at the fight we're having with the Saudis right now. That's not about nuclear weapons or conventional weapons. It's about finances and economics. Um, and so I would have liked to have seen more. I, by the way, I consider finances and economics hard power. That's not right. soft power. Uh, and so I would have liked to have seen more of that. Um, but as, as uh, both of my colleagues have said, we're two years into this administration and we're only now coming out with a strategy. So it's already a very different kind of document. And I suspect that the Congressional Commission looking at this is going to come back with many of the arguments it made last time around. You probably need to spend more on the military. You're not being operational enough, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, it is... Uh... Uh, well, I mean, right. I mean, it was 2018 when uh, the Trump administration rolled on its national uh, security and, and right national defense strategy, I think, came out first, if I recall. And then 
the national security uh, strategy, right? I mean, so, uh, you know, and I remember when- Certainly, certainly closely together that they were, that they were released. But look, I mean, I wouldn't point to the Trump administration as an example of anything. Well, I, that, that's true. And I, I was going to say that the Bush administration did it in the first nine months. It's just that it was being, you know, it was delayed because of 9-11, right? I mean, and so that's sort of a more of a conservative approach to try to get this out as quickly as you can earlier in your administration, uh, rather, uh, unfortunately, than, than a little bit later. But look, better, okay. late, uh, better late than never, uh, ultimately. Okay. Can I, Go ahead. Can I just jump in on the point sure. about um, integrated deterrence? Because that has been the subject of so many conversations. Um, you know, what is it exactly that's new here? I mean, for deterrence to be effective, it by nature has to be synchronized with other elements of national power. So you are effectively um, communicating uh, strategic signals to your adversary to convince them to not do things you don't want them to do. Um, but my read on integrated deterrence is that it's 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 not a new construct here. What's what's new or, or innovative is 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 actually it's it's actually saying we need to go back to basics. The Pentagon has been using the term deterrence fast and loose in all sorts of different ways. Um, there's also been conflation with um, the the um, the nuclear deterrent and deterrence, um, and and that's not helpful either. So what integrated deterrence seems to me to be doing is saying actually no, deterrence is some is is a whole of government thing. The military is a critical component of that, but we have to be thinking about how the right hand and the left hand have to be working together in a common way um, to, to communicate signals to adversaries. Um, I, uh, I, would, I would agree with you. Time is running very short, so we're going to get into a uh, lightning round. Unfortunately, Patrick had to drop off. Uh, very uh, quickly, uh, Kathleen, uh, the revolution in uh, Iran is being led by women. Uh, it is uh, getting worse. Uh, where women are openly defying um, authorities by not wearing headdresses, getting their hair cut. Um, there's dancing in the streets. There, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that are happening almost simultaneously. Um, give us your sense of the role that women are playing in this, because, uh, right, it was, it was the death of a young woman uh, that sparked this. There was the death of another woman who, you know, Girls. you know, allegedly jumped out a window. Uh, and then, you know, some of the most iconic images are of women being beaten or being tortured. Um, what, what's the role of women and what does this tell us sort of more I mean, broadly? What I think, you know, taking a step back and looking at this more strategically, we have been, um, we, we've been talking about advancing human rights and democracy and um, how Im Im important those those mechanisms are, and that's true. Uh, but what the national security world has not, in my view, done a sufficient job of is paying attention to these gender dynamics, you know, if and and how they impact um, uh, authoritarian conceptions of power and power structures and individual roles and, and core conceptions of our identities within these, these societies. Basically, Gender is an incredible pressure point in, in, um, in authoritarian regimes. You look at, look at what Putin's doing with his disinformation. You, you, the um, misogyny is one of the key vectors of spreading disinformation um, across Western populaces. Um, the Chinese government has articulated that they're afraid of the feminization of their boys. Um, and so these, these, these gender pressure points are incredibly important. But when we think about the world of national security, we tend to focus on orders of battle, and rightly so. But there's this huge human dimension that, that um, if we're serious about 
combating authoritarian regimes, we really ought to be paying a lot more attention to um, gender, women's roles, um, men's roles and identities, and and how these plays out in these in these constructs. And, and again, what are the pressure points? Uh, in, indeed, uh, Dove, uh, you've got a couple of we have a couple of um, minutes left, uh, and uh, you're already late for your appointment. Uh, give us your sense. Um, there's a sense of similarity. You talked about it last week that this is reminiscent of the Shah and how quickly the Shah fell. Uh, the government appears that it tried brutality and it didn't work, but it's a very different uh, state. How does this play out? Does this government quickly collapse? And more broadly, what does the collapse of this regime mean for geopolitics? Because it's potentially you know, as tectonic as it was uh, when the Ayatollahs took over and the Shah fell. Well, it it does remind one of the Shah, but there are a couple of differences. Uh, the big one is the, there was no revolutionary guard under the Shah. And, and when these kinds of governments fall, it's usually because the military doesn't want to fire on the civilians. The revolutionary guard is perfectly capable and has already done so of firing indiscriminately and as long as it wants to on civilians. So that already uh, is a major difference. It, the parallel may well be with the 1905 revolution in Russia, where you got a sense that things weren't going well. It took another dozen years, but it was a major indicator that things were going to change. And I think to that extent, and particularly in light of what Kathleen said, uh, to that extent, there's there's a clear indication that Something's going to be changing in Iran. Will the Ayatollahs fall right now? No, I don't think so. Uh, but there will be change uh, because I don't know how you just put a lid back on what's been going on because it's not just the women. It's all the people, men, women, minorities, lots of minorities. Right. It's right. still an empire uh, that, that feel repressed, whether it's over religion, whether it's over ethnicity, um, whatever it might be. And so uh, clearly, there's there's been a change. Um, if this government falls, the next question will be, would it be a revolutionary guard government that takes over? I'm not so sure. They are so involved and in supportive of this one and are clearly the enemy for all of those who are demonstrating and those who are sympathetic to the demonstrators that if this government falls, something's going to happen to the revolutionary guard as well. Let me ask you 30, 30 more seconds. We can discuss Saudi Arabia and everything else next week. Uh, January 6th uh, hearings, do they change the vector of this political race at all now that the committee has spoken and subpoenaed uh, Donald Trump? Or is this a tree that is interesting to some people, but actually completely falls in a deaf forest uh, when it comes to Republican voters or, or well, the body politic writ large? Well, there's a difference. The Republican voters, I think, yes, it's a tree in the forest. Um, they're probably not even watching it uh, or weren't watching it. Uh, the real issue is the independence, which is the largest party in this country right now. And I do think it'll have an impact on the independence. But then again, it depends on the actual race. Look at Wisconsin. You've got Ron Johnson and everybody knows uh, how inadequate a senator he's been. But he's up against uh, someone who calls himself a Bernie Sanders progressive. When you have that kind of choice, it's not at all clear which way the, the independents are going to go. So uh, in the key states, particularly on the Senate side, uh, it's still a toss up. But I think that the hearings and the uh, yesterday in particular 
will have an impact on independent voters. And it was an extraordinary uh, video uh, that also came out uh, yesterday of uh, what the leadership was was going through. Uh, guys, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. An absolutely terrific conversation as always. And look forward to having you guys back on again next week. And, and before we go, make sure you check out Dove's piece uh, on V2 Rockets. It's in the Hill, uh, making the comparison with Ukraine and Winston Churchill. Absolutely uh, terrific piece. And I commend it to the audience. In the meantime, have a great day, great weekend, and a great week. Thanks so much.